this is the Book Table podcast, uh, your audio book club with me, Sophie, and I'm joined by Fee. Hello. And Annie. Hi. So uh, in this episode, we're talking about classics. So what is a classic? What makes a, cl- what makes a classic a classic for us? And what are classics that we like uh, and want to read? It's a bit of a chaotic fair warning a little bit of a yeah. rambling one here uh-huh. but we just kind of wanted to share our thoughts on classic literature it's a chaotic and chatty episode and yeah just 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 prepare in advance really <laughs> yeah we hope you enjoy the episode so i want to start this with just like a really broad question and that is what is a classic to you and I feel like I can see Annie on the edge of her seat, ready to raise her hand in the air, demanding that yes, teacher, please ask me. Let me ask the question. I have. I expected no practice. less. God, you're getting flashbacks. Yeah. You're getting flashbacks to me in English lit class in sixth form, weren't you? No. So I, I actually have a. Um, very appropriate <laughs> quote queued up for the moment. I, in case you're wondering, I was insufferable to be in seminars with. Um, so, W. H. Auden once said, "The anticipation." It's gonna take me a minute to find it. You something good. Yeah. Okay. W. H. Auden once said, "Some books are undeservedly forgotten. None are undeservedly remembered." Ooh, I like that one. So. I always find that really helpful when thinking about classics in terms of sort of literary canon. Um, Literary, if you're not familiar with the terminology, often will, uh, academics in particular, will talk about the literary canon, but um, I think it's probably a more general term as well. And that means sort of the set of books that are sort of, you know, the classics, the great literature, and to be excluded from a, the canon, I think, is something that we talk about a lot in terms of, well, you know, Shakespeare has this huge role in our culture and especially in our education as this sort of, you know, Monmouth. Monmouth? You mean Mammoth? Mammoth? Not Monmouth. Monmouth. For a, like, I thought you were <laughs> like, are you talking about Jeffrey and Monmouth? And then I was like, no, 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 wait. No, you're definitely not talking about Jeffrey and Monmouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, Shakespeare, for instance, has a mammoth role in sort of culture and education, in part because of his sort of mammoth role in the literary canon. But there's a whole world of other authors, um, other like early modern playwrights who aren't necessarily who, you know, you'll you'll go through your entire education without ever having come across you might go through your entire life without ever having come across. And when we think about what's a classic, one of the really big questions to grapple with is what other than, what is it that's, we want to think that quality is the only Mm. thing, you know, that quality, you know, a book ascends to being a classic through being just the best, but actually it's a lot more complicated than that. There aren't a lot of real like shockers in the sort of the English literary canon. I think everything, whether or not I like it, I think every classic in the literary canon probably deserves to be there. 
I think the bigger question to think about when thinking about literary classics is what are we missing? What did deserve to be there that didn't get in? How do we expand the canon? Can we get mm. back those texts? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to hand it over to someone else now that I've said my prepared <laughs> seminar speech. As, as the only one of us that didn't say study English lit, yeah. what's, your, what's, what's your take on this? Yeah, yeah. FYI, I haven't studied English literature since I was like 15. So <laughs> um, did, yeah. t- did do my GCSE in it, just was an August baby. So technically I was 15. Um, oh yeah, of course. But oh, yeah. I always thought for me, well, classics, I just associated with basically old, great literature. You know, like it had to be old. That was its first mm. kind of <laughs> tick box. <laughs> but... I think what then started to change it was when we were reading I wouldn't say it was like it was less old it was just like it wasn't as old as I was used to with other literature and that was like A Streetcar Named Desire, The Crucible, those sorts of um, literature and for me then it changed into something that almost it was a piece of literature that was a pivotal read. So whether it was pivotal for the time or it was pivotal for the readers, it was just pivotal, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's... I'd probably say something that still resonates, like something that has the power to stay with people is kind of what I'd probably value most as a classic like something that people continually find value in even decades or centuries after the text was written and it's divorced from its like um you know original context like that's probably the main criteria for me and in that way it doesn't really matter what the text's about like it doesn't need to be you know your thought-provoking analysis of I don't know, English society or something in order to stick with people and have value. And I think at least part of my perspective on this kind of comes from the fact that whilst I did study English Lit, I spent most of my degree avoiding the classics. And instead I studied a lot of medieval shit. And um, (laughs) something like Beowulf was relatively scorned up until relatively recently because, you know, it had dragons and therefore it was not serious lit because there's monsters and children's things in this and but it's a text mm. that lasted and persisted and was then critically reevaluated. and I think that's kind of where we should be with all books like I, I think being a, if it's not a classic it should never be like a done thing if that makes sense like there's always classics mm. to be discovered and I think but yeah. I think a lot of the time it is kind of like what you said, Be like people have this fixed idea in their mind that a classics is Charles Dickens or Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte, but like a classic mm-hmm. can be anything provided it kind of has that power to just stay and inspire like people to look into it and keep reading it. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like from you saying that, I'm thinking about fables and... Uh, I know, like, say, the Odyssey is class mm-hmm. class as like a classic, but yeah, when I think of I don't know Hans Christian Andersen or like those sorts of fairy tales, I don't put them in the same category in my head. 
Well, they would yeah. probably be considered to be children's classics. Like, oh, take Narnia. Okay. That would be... It's like when Harry Potter came out and everyone's like, this is a children's classic. Yeah. Like, one of those books that you feel mm-hmm. like kids are just going to keep reading. And, like, I think there's almost, like, a subgenre of classics that are classics. Yeah. One of the things I'm thinking about, just in terms of what we're talking about, is it's a very difficult definition to make because you don't decide what makes a classic by yourself, you know? But I think mm. it's also really empowering yeah. to remember that as readers... Um, the three of us and every listener has a say in what's a classic. Like these are decisions that are made by cultures and societies about what gets lifted up as a classic. So maybe in a hundred years, we will think of fairy tales as sort of classical literature. Um, and maybe in a hundred years, we will think of Harry Potter as classical literature and maybe in a hundred years we won't, but that's sort of like all cultural decisions it's both something that we're powerless to do anything about and something that we are making as a society. And so I think it's getting that balance between mm. this is a classic because I say it's a classic, but also understanding that <laughs> the literary canon as it exists was mostly shaped by white men who are probably now dead. Yeah. Um, we talk about this a lot in terms of, um, I talk this about this a lot with my students in terms of, what we think of as Renaissance literature and the rena- the great Renaissance literature and the great Renaissance literary canon um, was shaped by white men in the Victorian era. And it's not actually reflective of what was popular during the Renaissance. It was what's popular during, you know, the development of literary criticism mm. in the 18th, uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. And we're allowed to change that, you know? It's not set in stone. It's actually constantly malleable. and the biggest power you have is your attention. Yeah. So if you want to see something that isn't a class, like uh, go out and read what you want. And it's, I think it's valuable. There's a value in reading classics, but there's also a value in sort of stepping outside of what's typically considered classics, trying to find some slightly more offbeat things. You know what I mean? Working out what you want to read as a classic. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because mm-hmm. we are so, I think there's this almost this hierarchy that people have instilled in their brains that those that read classics and analyze classics are, I don't know, somehow better readers or more of a reader than somebody who doesn't. That's, that's the broken school system for you. Yeah. That yeah. I, I blame in large part being telling you like, you know, like they, what did they make us read Jane Eyre when you're like we were 11 or something they're like this is the book you read or 13 I I do remember at one point they tried to make us use a Victorian text and then they retracted it because they realized that we were a bit too young and everyone was like (laughs) I first read Jane Eyre when I was 20 and I don't think I'd love it I love Jane Eyre and I wouldn't love it if I hadn't read it later you know I I remember reading a Pride and Prejudice book I picked it up as my book in um the you know the airport wh smith yeah and i picked it up and i thought and I, how old was i i was probably i think i was still in primary school actually oh i was, must have been 11 but i i just i don't know i think i just thought if i could re- if i can read this then that means i'm smart 
And I was like, no, <laughs> you may be able to read it, but that doesn't mean you'll enjoy it. And actually, I didn't end up finishing it because I just didn't enjoy it at the time and I didn't understand it. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to read <laughs> Philip Pullman and like, you know, other, I, I wanted to read fantasy. I didn't want to read old yeah. Pride and Prejudice, you know, whatever it, what, what's the time? <laughs> what was the time? Uh, Regency. regency yeah i don't want to read any regency era books yeah. but also like so i'm gonna put on my phd student genuine certified literary academic here, hat here <laughs> and say that there is somewhat a trickle-down economy in terms of what's a classic you know um Mm. what what are we writing about what are we paying attention to in universities you know because that then influences what can be studied what what are their additions of you know there's a there is there is a kind of influence that's exerted there and no one like none no one in it they're all very smart people but none of them are smart by birthright you know what I mean no one's smart by birthright yeah. universities aren't learned yeah. full of people who are somehow different or smarter there are like honestly every day in this world morons graduate with PhDs you know <laughs> none of them have more like I think it really helps to say well you know there are there are sort of it's the publishing industry and the academic and like the sort of the academic zeitgeist in a way that defines what gets to be a classic. I mean, I think there are, there are more forces than just those, but I would identify those as two big things. And you have to remember that it's all subjective. It's all opinion. They're not going to be purposefully picking out bad books, but they might have different tastes to you. And they might like, not every classic is going to be for everyone and not every book is going to be for everyone. And it's really not a reflection of intelligence or like value. You know what I mean? Do you think it's like, you know how school is almost the first exposure you get to a classic literature? <laughs> like, do you think that it's the, it is the school system which perpetuates the continuation of what we classify as a classic. I would say so. I think it, it, what it also comes out to, it's kind of like what Annie said about academia having a hold on it, because what ends up happening is schools will teach books that they have materials to teach about. And just mm -hmm. like, so it's like, so one thing that happened was when we were in sixth form, uh, we studied like, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, but I couldn't study it for like personal reasons. So, but one text had to be post 1990. So my teacher essentially was like, here are two random, these are the only two texts that we can find that aren't Ted Hughes that we have literary criticism for. You can choose Atonement or Dancing at Lunasa. And in my head, I'm just like, is this how we choose what becomes a modern classic? Is like, is this just how we assign value? Like somebody wrote, some some like critical essay on this so I guess it's you know it's worthy to be taught and it's like it's a very arbitrary yeah. mm -hmm. very it's my very colleagues working on modern literature you know sitting there reading their I don't know whatever's their Ian McEwan's and their Ali Smith's and deciding what's good and what, what's going to make it into the articles they publish and that's mm -hmm. going to trickle down to what 
a sixth former can study based on what there's criticism of. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think that's the whole story, but I think that's there's certainly some truth to that. But to be fair, I think there is a there's a bigger push in academia than people think there is to widen our net in terms of what we put into the canon. I, as an undergraduate, I did a course called um, Introduction to Alternative Life Worlds Fiction, and it was about science fiction. And it was taught by two professors who were working on sort of the development of sort of sci-fi criticism and, and alternative life worlds fiction as a school of thought. And so there is a sort of developing um, body of critical literature on that kind of stuff. And if that's what it takes for things to be classics, I think I have a lot of hope that in the future, there will be a much wider body of classical literature and a much more um, diverse yeah. in kind, diverse in genre, and obviously most importantly, diverse in writer yeah. um, body yeah. of literary canon. <laughs> personal classics i would say that like 1960s classic sci-fi your philip k dicks your isaac asimovs to me those are classics they really are like that to me is like part of in my opinion as a sci-fi loving person like those are essential mm. texts that mm. you need to read if you want to like experience the birth of sci-fi like very much and then you kind of get down into like classics percolating like by genre because then you get, yeah, yeah. This is kind of the thing with like talking about classics. It's like which avenue do you even want to go down next? Because there's a whole thing of like genre classics and mm. works that become classics because they kind of define things. I'll tell you what, I have a question I'm going to throw out to you guys. Okay, how old yeah. does something have to be before mm. it's a classic? Do you think age is part of a classic? And do you think it should be? And does age contribute to how you think? of a text as a classic? So I think it should be one vector, but not the only one, if that makes sense. Mm. Because I do think there's value in measuring how, like I said at the start, part of how I think, or, or what I think should be part of uh, what formulates a classic is its staying power. I think that's a valid, and I think that's a valid vector to measure something by, like, mm. If a, if a text has the power to stay decades and centuries, then it has something in it that is of value, whatever that is. But it's mm -mm. definitely not mm. the only one. And I do think we very easily slip into a mindset of thing old, ugly thing classic, as opposed to like thinking about it more broadly. Yeah. But I would say that to me, it is something of value. I don't know. What about mm. you, Vic? I think I know that in my head, I, I think it does it does play a factor in what I view as a classic but I don't necessarily think that should be the case yeah um but I do understand that it should be a it it is a factor because I think as we're moving forward we're seeing the rise of trendy books and mm. like what but like the surge of a certain cluster of rep like repetitive titles that come into view either on social media or wherever and actually they don't stand the test of time necessarily it doesn't mean that they stand the test of time necessarily I kind of think of it in relation to like the way we consume music yeah you know we've got our classics like the Beatles and stuff but that's not necessarily like the Beatles aren't Mozart do you know what I mean like 
they are in different categories, but we view them with the same kind of gravitas that they had on society and in shaping music going forward. Yeah. And I think even though we have songs in the top 40 now, doesn't mean that people will still connect with them and they will stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just, I want to play a game just while we're talking about books and popular books (laughs) versus um, while we're talking about um, popular books versus um, classics, books that stand the test of time versus books that are popular in the moment. um, I want you to pick a year between Mm. 1932 and 1980. 1956. Mm, that was. I was going to say 1953. <laughs> okay, we can we can do both. Okay, I'm going to start with 1953. All right. Um, have you heard of the Silver Chalice by T. B. Constain? No. That was the first week of um 1953 that was the um best fiction bestseller oh then it was a popular one it was east of eden by john steinbeck okay well that i have oh i was gonna say that you've probably heard of um desiree by anne-marie salinko no no beyond this place by aj cronin no Lord Vanity by Samuel Shellabarger. Also no. Although I'm uh, loving yeah. these ni- these titles. They're great. <laughs> yeah. All right. 1956. Andersonville by McKinley Cantor. Nope. No. The Last Hurrah by Edwin O'Connor. No. No. Don't Go Near the Water by William Brinkley. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Peyton Place by Grace... Metallius. Also no. No, but that's a great name, Metallius. <laughs> you might have heard of Peyton Place because it then became a um, sitcom. Hell no. A soap opera <laughs> in America. Um, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that we think of the best books of the year as the best sellers, you know, the really popular ones. But actually... If you pick a random year, like, hold on one minute. I'm going to go for a specific year this time, okay? And I want you to, I want to see if you can guess. I mean, you won't be able to, hopefully you won't be able to guess why I chose this year. Okay, here's my idea for a game. I'm going to read you a list of um, the bestsellers of a year. And then I'm going to tell you the classic that was written in that year, that was published in that year, that was why I was looking at that specific year. Okay? Okay. I don't mm-hmm. really understand the parameters of this game, but okay. A game was a strong word. Like, okay. me talking is probably a better term <laughs> for it. Okay. So, 1949. There were only four bestsellers that year, so they were the bestsellers for sort of multiple months. The Big Fisherman by Lloyd C. Douglas, Point of No Return, by John B. Marquand, A Rage to Live by John O'Hara, and The Egyptian by Michael Waltari. Published that year, 1984 by George Orwell. 
No way. All right. 1951 is a big list. There are quite a few of them. The Disenchanted, Bud Schulberg, Joy Street, Francis Parkinson Keys, the um From Here to Eternity, James Jones, The Kane Mutiny, Herman Wuok. 1951, published that year? Catcher in the Rye. What? <laughs> and finally, 1967, um, The Secret of Santa Vittoria by Robert Critchen. The Arrangement by Eliza Kazan. The Eighth Day by Thomas w- Thornton Wilder. Um, the Chosen by Chain Potuk. Topaz by Leon Uris. Um, the, Gab- the Gabriel Hounds by Mary Student. Uh, by Mary Stewart and The Confessions of Nat Turner by William Streisand. 1967, published that year, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. My point being that the books that are popular are really not the books that stick around. You know what I mean? There you go. So if you ever want to be an author out there, if your book doesn't sell or isn't a bestseller, hey, you never know. Your book could be taught in high school in a hundred years' time, or less than. Yeah. Might suck for you because you don't get the money, but I'm sure it's a reputation. You're a struggling artist. The Great Gatsby became a classic because it was a book that was given out <laughs> free to soldiers wow. in World War Two. Marketing at yeah. its best. Yeah, it was a really unpopular book. And considered, but then it was it was picked up. There was this program that gave free books to soldiers fighting in the trenches in World, not fighting in the trenches in World War Two, to American soldiers in World War Two, giving them sort of, and that's where most of like our conception of the great American novel comes from. The books that were given out um, to soldiers. There you go. Give a book in to, this give program. Give a book to a soldier and just spread it around. You'll be a bestseller in no time. Yeah, I was gonna say. I'm completely vain. I would rather be a best-selling author than an author of a classic that outlives me. You know, I want to. I don't care about being famous when I'm dead. I want to be famous now. <laughs> that is such Leo energy right there. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm also the only one of us that doesn't really write. So, like, might not matter, but yeah. <laughs> Who cares about when I'm dead? I want to be famous now. So, um, let's bring it back to some more basic questions then. So what are your favourite classics? I'm going to um, surprise no one by bringing up my favourite book, possibly of all time, Jane Eyre. No surprise over here. <laughs> I love Jane Eyre. I love Jane Eyre. I just... Why do you love it, though? Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. only way to make Annie not talk about Jane Eyre is to ask her why she loves Jane Eyre. So basically, at its heart, there are two things going on in Jane Eyre. One is a woman who was bullied as a child being independent and living by her own means and on her own terms, you know? Mm. And that, I think, is great. Also in Jane Eyre, a deeply toxic relationship in which a man manipulates and lies <laughs> to a woman because he loves her. 
I was waiting for that. I was like, she loves the toxic trope. Oh, that's what she loves. I just she loves the toxic romance. Yeah, it has it has the two things that I want from my novel: strong female protagonists who I can look up to, and the like rock bottom shitty manipulative men who they're in love with. Like, it's it's really a you know a my 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 two you know. It's inspiring, not just because Jane Eyre is a strong woman, but she's a strong woman who manages to date just the absolute worst of men and change him, you know? So it both has all of my healthy obsessions and all of my unhealthy obsessions in one neat package, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. Okay, Pete, what about you? I know you haven't read as many, but... I haven't really... I don't really read classics, but... The one I did love and like, I, yes, I did read it in school, but I did genuinely love it was A Streetcar Named Desire. Now, I know that's a play, but it is regarded as a classic and I, I think it loved counts. it. I, I would definitely I think it count counts. it. It's, it's fantastic. Stella! Stella! <laughs> like, I, I just love it. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't you, uh, Sophie, didn't you and I go and see it? Annie, were you there? Yeah, yeah. Did you go? No, I wasn't. No, you weren't. No. But Sophie and I, and then a few other people from our year, yeah. we went to yeah outside of Rub school. Sultan. We paid for our own tickets. We went to go to see, um, oh, what's her name? Lillian Anderson. Anderson. In uh, play Blanche at the Old Vic. Um, and that's where I sat in Jude Law's seat. And I didn't know it was Jude Law <laughs> until 10 minutes after I'd met him. And my friend was like, you just spoke to Jude Law. And I was like, that's not Jude Law. And then I looked around and I was like, oh, that's Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it was a great night. <laughs> if you ever sure. want to find celebrities, go to, the, go to a play at the Old Vic. You'll definitely find someone there. <laughs> I feel like I do this a bit. I ask a question on this podcast and then I realize I don't know my own answer to it. So I'm just, sorry, I'm just thinking for a second. <laughs> well, while you're doing that, feet. the other answer that I thought you might give was um, Catcher in the Rye. I feel like you're a big Catcher in the Rye person. Yeah, I was going to say, I I know you like Catcher no, in the Rye. No, she's called Catcher in the Rye. I do like Catcher in the Rye, but it's not my favorite. Um, oh, okay. My, it was my dad's favorite. Oh, um, okay. Uh, I actually stole, I shouldn't say oh. this probably on the podcast, <laughs> but um, I stole the book. I stole, I stole uh, the, uh, the school's copy of Catcher in the Rye. I never gave it Wait, back. Wait, we studied Catcher in the Rye at school? My like English that. class did. My English class did. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I was like, what? I, my, I was always in the English class that read different books to you guys like oh yeah because you did streetcar at gcse right yeah we did streetcar at gcse we did we did anthony and cleopatra yeah we did (laughs) and you did Macbeth. what did we do instead of counter in the rye um of mice and men we read Uh, no we did read of Mice the flies yeah you did lord of the flies i didn't i haven't Uh, read that still oh Oh, don't bother it's crap (laughs) <laughs> oh, I like that one. <laughs> Do you know what? Have you guys heard of Yellow Jackets? 
the new um this new tv series and i would i mean i would no. it's, it's actually a bit gruesome i don't know if you guys would enjoy stuff like that but it is interesting right here's the thing i always object to about this oh lord of the flies you know man's inhumanity to man we're all terrible this is why i hate lord of the flies i think people are generally good and the evidence i have for this is that once four schoolboys did get stranded on an island together and they treated each other with love and respect one of them in the shipwreck got a broken leg and he only survived because the others nursed him back to health and looked after him they had a schedule they had routines they looked after each other and they had a thing where if they ever had if two boys ever had an argument they'd send them to opposite sides of the island to walk towards <laughs> each other and cool off and then they could talk oh when they God. got to the middle and were in a better mood so like this is why i hate lord of the flies and like all of its derivatives people are nice to well, each other well then you obviously haven't islands. seen spongebob squarepants episode <laughs> with the with the conch the mighty conch have you seen that episode and like pat patrick squidward and spongebob yeah, get again, stranded and they they listen to the mighty conch as their savior do they all destroy each other or like want to destroy each other do they turn murderous no squidward squidward no squid in humanity you know squidward but squids in humanity to sponge yeah like well i don't know if it's in humanity it's just it's just squidward you know like just it's not very optimistic (laughs) about life this is off topic um anyway. sophie have you got a um, okay I'm, I'm, oh. I'm trying i'm trying to make a snap decision here and i'm like shit we're going with really? the mighty men i think really it's that or like mrs dalloway no no not mrs dalloway the lighthouse. Or, lighthouse, the lighthouse. or the great gatsby i'm like juggling like three of i think we can talk about all three of them or Jane Eyre, honestly. Mm. Jane Eyre is yeah. great too. Do you also uh, have a thing for extremely damaged men who want to treat yeah. you like shit because they love you? No, I mean, I have, I like Jane. No, you see, I'm a big proponent that you can't read Jane Eyre without reading White Sargasso Sea. I think White Sargasso Sea is a classic in its like, own right. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And I, I, I would argue that you should never only read Jane Eyre. You should always read Wide Sargasso. I have actually Sea never read Wide Sargasso. Unless you're in love with I was going to say, I've never read Wide Sargasso Sea because I think it would ruin Rochester. And honestly, like, oh, it my, my sanity Fuck is that guy. by a thread as it is. There are some Me, things that I... He should die in that fire. I wish he died in that fire instead of butter. <laughs> <laughs> seriously i hate but this is why i've never but no, you should, I, this you is why i'm not gonna it. read wild sargasso sea i am sure it would fundamentally change my opinion of rochester but like i need him you know i need him okay but he doesn't deserve a sight back yeah like, he, he does that's how back. the book actually no he does he does get his sight back he does slowly regain his sight he does yeah i'm pretty sure he gets but he sight. never gets his arm yeah. back he just only deserves it yeah, he loses an arm. He loses an arm? I haven't read this book in there ages. There you go. He never gets his arm back. The blindness thing. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, yeah. I go into a murderous rage whenever I think of Bites yeah. or Gas OC. 
I, I'm just like dying Rochester. They both deserve better. Like, sorry. I'll bring this up when we talk about our transformative mm. works again. And you can listen oh, yeah. to me. Um, just reminded me, we should talk about plays and their <laughs> significant as classics. <laughs> because, sorry, sorry. That, that prompted a very big laugh because we went down a mental tangent beforehand <laughs> that ended with Mamma Mia as a classical work. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, is this, is this, is this Fee's way oh, of bringing Oh, I was shaking my podcast? hands because I thought this was my opportunity okay. to talk about Shakespeare. Well, I have Shakespeare underlined here, but Annie, but yeah, I yeah. will I bring up that too. Mamma Mia should be a classic. It should be taught in schools. <laughs> I think I would love to hear the theories of 16 year old children figuring out who Sophie's dad is. Not Sophie on the podcast, Sophie from Mamma Mia. <laughs> See, no, I think that trying to establish, I don't think there is a dad. I think trying to establish who Sophie's dad is. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I don't think there's a right answer. There's, it's not in the text. There is no sort of angle that you can take to examine the text of Mamma Mia or Mamma Mia 2 and work out who the dad is. I think the dad is... All of them. It's the friends we made along the way. The signet... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The dad is... They are all the dad. Like, I don't think the text has the answers. Like, part of the point is of the... I think the point of the text is that, you know, and I think the point of literature classes shouldn't be working out who Sophie's dad is. My literature class word. But I think good literary analysis isn't about finding the answer. It's about exploring the ways in Mm. which all of the answers are right. Damn you and your literature knowledge. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I think Mamma Mia should be written into a book and should be analysed. I think... Well, Fleabag did get written into a book. The script of Fleabag did get written into a book. So, yeah, hey, will they be analysing Fleabag? I'm pretty sure the scripts of um, Good go. Omens Should as well. That be, will that be classic? But that's already a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't make the rules. I was like, why do they do that? <laughs> One word, text. Sophie. Money. <laughs> Uh, yeah actually yes uh <laughs> but anyway annie yeah. um would you like yeah. to have your designation yeah shakespeare, shakespeare time i would like to have my designation okay. shakespeare time um the thing that i would like to say about shakespeare is that the and all plays is that the classic isn't reading them like reading them is a false experience what you need to do is you need to see what? them so oh oh okay i, I got I it i don't say, know i thought my mind huh? didn't think about like seeing the play i thought you meant like see them reading them and performed. i was like how else are we going to digest it and then you were like you need to see them and i was like imagining them in your head like <laughs> all right no you need to see them performed i I mean, you can read them. I think reading them is a worthwhile experience. I think it's sort of like, you know, if you can't see a musical listening to the soundtrack is not the experience of seeing the musical, but it's something and it's something that you can you can appreciate the artistry of it. Yeah, but I think I, I would really encourage you to watch Shakespeare plays. And there are a lot of really good like films of Shakespeare plays. Um, in particular, I want to single out um, the Baz Luhrmann, <gasps> Romeo oh, and Juliet, which is the which is extremely textually accurate. It's very sort of loyal to the scripts. Um, 
And so I just want to say that plays can be classical literature. I was just going to say Baz Luhrmann is my favourite, like, it's one of my favourite films, let alone one of my favourite Shakespeare adaptations. But it made me fall in love with the actual text of Romeo and Juliet. Like, I read it in, I read it first. One of the only things I read first before I watched it. (laughs) And, And I... I, j- I found it so boring in class. And then when we watched the Baz Luhrmann film, I was like, oh my gosh, I get it. I get it now. Like, I get the language. And I think that's one of the off-putters, the language. Because yeah. it doesn't translate the same yeah. way as just reading any other text. Yeah, well, and I think sometimes schools want to be like, oh, you should read the Shakespeare play before you watch it. No, no, you shouldn't. Like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, I am getting a PhD in Renaissance literature. I hereby give you my blessing. Watch it. Just watch it. I love that scene when he comes out and he's like, do you bite your thumb at me, sir? And I love how basically what happens is he turns to his friends and is like, do they look dangerous? Do you think they could sue us? I no. I bite my thumb, sir. I don't bite my thumb at you, yeah. sir. And then you see the gun, like Tybalt's gun. <laughs> and he's just like, and he's like, praise before he shoots. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just the amazing visuals. And of course, a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. Of course. So plays are definitely classics. Well, my designated Shakespeare time is just to say plays are classics, but you should watch them if you can. Yeah, um, they are not that. static texts. They are visual. Like, I always think of that Doctor Who line: "A footprint doesn't look like a boot." You know, you're seeing the footprint. You're not seeing the boot. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like I would say that's definitely my experience, especially with the comedies. Like Shakespeare comedies, mm. reading them is like it's just incomprehensible. You're like, what? What? What is this? This is supposed to be funny, but then you see it, and it is genuinely yeah. funny. It will make you yeah. laugh even though they're still talking like they're saying jokes that you don't understand just seeing them perform it conveys that humor to you but also i think part of the problem with shakespearean comedies is we're not necessarily taught that shakespeare is really funny and like filthy and and (laughs) so sort of um irreverent like um here's a fun fact for you the line some men are born great some become great and some have greatness thrust upon them it's a, it's a dick joke <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a dick some <laughs> men are born great as in you know some men i, I don't need to explain the whole thing to you <laughs> specifically about penises i promise I'm just now got in my head young hearts run free like because of the Baz Luhrmann film you know anyway. the scene where he's like he he's all dressed up at the at the ball oh who's it who is it what's his name I don't know wait are you like, like Leonardo DiCaprio actor, which one no his best friend like the character the best Mercutio? friend Oh, Tybalt, Mercutio? Mercutio. Mercutio. And he's just like, all dressed up, all glam. Good production. Mercutio should be the hottest person in Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. And he was the hottest person. And he was like, young hearts, run free. And he was like doing a whole dance to it and everything. And when he died, 
spoiler alert <laughs> if you haven't read Romeo and Juliet but like it's centuries old you should know <laughs> like a lot of people die in this story <laughs> spoiler yeah. but I I actually like sobbed but in the play one thing I think that we're sort of talking about here with Shakespeare that I think is really important is sometimes going into a classic and reading a class piece of classic literature thinking about it as a classic ruins the experience of it you know I think especially because we're not necessarily taught that classics are funny often like like there's so much bizarre inappropriate humor in Ulysses that I didn't so I read Ulysses for a 10-week course that I did on just Ulysses and there's so much like inappropriate humor and and like jokes and clever things that I didn't get just because I was so in my head about oh my god this is Ulysses you know the blah, blah, blah. I was like no it's funny and it it mm-hmm. I mean obviously it shouldn't have been censored censorship is bad but there was a reason why it was censored and it wasn't like yeah I think sometimes we need to approach classics as but, fun not necessarily light-hearted but enjoyable mm-hmm. Yeah, and also just regular, like we would approach other books as well. Like you go in just trying to enjoy the content that has been written rather than this gravitas uh, legacy that it holds and you feel like, oh, I need to understand it more than just for reading's sake, but almost behind the words that have been written. And you don't, you just, you can just enjoy the content. Yeah, Like you don't have to think about it. Yeah, you know how on TikTok, a book talk, even people are always talking about oh, overhyped book talks, book talk books, or books that weren't worth the hype. Yeah. yeah, a classic is just a book with hundreds of years of hype behind it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Nothing can live up to that hype. So yeah. sometimes you just got to take a couple of deep breaths and be like, oh, "This is a book. Let's see." The mm. next question I was going to ask is, what classics have we not read, but we want to and i can already see annie reaching for her stack of books that she she brought out like do you do you want to go now or should i go to v are you ready okay no no i'll go Um, (laughs) i just i always have a pile of classic literature that i haven't read but want to um but i do get around to them eventually i just read oh that's one of the ones um literally a couple of weeks ago i was thinking i was like not read that absolutely yeah neither really good i also just read the trial by franz kafka also a great book um so here in my stack metamorphosis by kafka catherine the rye by jd salinger uh naked lunch by william s burroughs i'm not sure that's i'm calling that a classic because the copy i have literally has (laughs) the penguin modern classics (laughs) so even though i don't i don't imagine many people will have heard of it but that's a Mm. classic um, on the Road by Jack Kerouac and For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. A lot of sort of 20th century going on here. I'm obviously mm. not reaching back with my classics. B, what about you? Um, I don't know. This is quite hard because I don't actually reach for classics all that much. Although, that being said, one of my New Year's resolutions, book-wise, was to read m- more, more classics. But for me, that's like reading one classic this year. <laughs> like... <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess 1984 would be up there. I would also say um, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Is that 
that's the name title of it right by Oscar Wilde Mm -hmm. and um I've also got The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath on my bookshelf and I also got um The Virgin Suicides I don't know if that would count as a classic but I view it as one that's very modern but I think you can approach it as a classic yeah is Jeffrey Eugenity still alive I think he might be I have no idea I I mean, I, I assumed he was. I don't know why it's, it's dead. I just, I guess, because I, I viewed the su- like Virgin Suicides as a classic, so I just assume all the classic writers are dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was published in 1993. I also got um, Valley of the Dolls, and Jeffrey Eugenides is alive. He's 61. Oh, wow. oh my god, my dad's older than him. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Yeah. I don't appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Both my parents are older than him. Um, I also got, uh, I did a, a big uh, book um, purchase. You know, like, of course I did. You know, when, no, when me, but know? anyway. Um, I was being, to be fair, they are all paperbacks. Um, so it's not like I'm, you know. And I didn't end up getting a £10 credit at the end of it. So I think that's quite tame. Is anyone else starting to see the problem with, like, yeah, you didn't spend a hundred yeah, books and get ten pounds off your next shop. That's not, not impressive. Yeah. Also, is anyone else starting to see the problem with a New Year's resolution of no? Yeah, more I'm. I think that there should well, be an implicit paper. Like those paperbacks are going to add up, and you are going to die in your sleep. Well, I mean, you know, like. By the way, for listeners, for new <laughs> listeners, that's not a threat. <laughs> Fee sleeps underneath a shelf. Where she's putting <laughs> all of these books that she's buying. That's not like a, if you keep buying paperbacks, you're gonna die. Look, I've already accidentally insinuated I should murder one person today. I really shouldn't have just done that. I, I also, I also really want to read. I have so I got I inherited two books from my mum's collection, which is um Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Sorry, Dostoyevsky. <laughs> Um, and I've got Crime and Punishment and The Idiot. Um, fun fact, guy, the one of the when I was at uni, I had the books on my bookshelf. Never got around to it because I was studying for a degree. Um, <laughs> and I also the guy that um I'd shared a house with the year before. He wanted his deposit back, but he wanted it back in cash. And so I went to my local cash point and got out like, I don't even know how much money was there, but it was like a thick wad of cash for a deposit. And I, I, I went back and he took ages to come by and like collect the money. Weeks, you know? Months, no months. months. So I had this Jesus. wad of cash and I was like, I don't want to put this in my wallet and I don't want to put it where someone can find it so I put it I was like I need to remember where I put it so I put it in the idiot Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. how I remembered it (laughs) oh my gosh dickwad who would never pick up his fucking money um yeah so those are the books I actually have a few Russian literature books classic Russian literature books I want to read I don't know why that's I, I'm going to second that. I want to read classic Russian yeah. literature a bit. Maybe we can read it together. 
at a book club. Yeah. Do you guys know of a book club? I mean, I've read Crime and Punishment, but I'd be down for reading one of the other ones, as long as it's not war. I can imagine you enjoying a book called The Idiot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I bought also another one called oh, Something and Margarita. I've forgotten. The Master and Margarita. Yeah, The Master and Margarita. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, you sound so enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Someone once told me about Russian, re- uh, Russian literature. So either the characters are miserable, the author's miserable, or the reader's miserable. And if all three are miserable, then it's a classic. <gasps> Let, I'm on a hunt to find all three. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what classics do you want to read? Okay, so it's all the Willis stuff by Annie, like definitely 1984, Catcher in the Rye. I think there was at least one other one that you mentioned. But other than those ones, I think, again, I'm more like classic 20th century literature is kind of where yeah. I would like to go. So like Catch-22 and then also, I don't know if it's a classic yet, but it's, I feel like it's one of those books that it's definitely going to be and that would be A Handmaid's Tale. Oh, like, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's basically already there. And as far as that kind of fits the premises of what we've seen, like it not being a bestseller at the time, but gaining popularity over time. Was The Handmaid's <laughs> Tale not a bestseller? That's interesting. <laughs> oh, not a bestseller. Yeah, it wasn't a bestseller. Oh, okay. Okay. I think of it as a bestseller, but that's probably just knowing how popular it is however many years later. Well, the sequel was a bestseller, mm. but the, oh, yeah, her first one that she published was back in the 80s, and that didn't yeah. set, like sell a lot, well, from yeah. what I've heard. Mm, interesting. Okay, so f- f- final question. Um, credit to whichever one of you two came up with this. Can't remember now, but to round thing out, what isn't a classic but should be? So that can either be like old books that we think are underrated that are not really given the classic title or like modern books that we think definitely should be classics. Right. So I have... Oh, do you want to go first? No, you go first. Oh, okay. I have two. I have two. I can sense Um, the excitement in your voice. First one (laughs) is um, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. What's it about? Incredible book. Um, so it was published in 2018. I've written in it. I've written my name in it in June 2000, January 2019. That's when oh, I bought it, obviously. Wow. I think it came out the year before that. Yeah, I, I write that. I try to write that in the books mm. that I buy. Um, but so it's about um, right as the civil, the American Civil War is raging, Abraham Lincoln's son dies. And it's sort of about the ghost of his son in the graveyard. Like, uh, so this very small boy ghost along with all of these other ghosts in the graveyard, but it's also sort of written, it's written partially through sort of the ghosts talking to each other and partially through um, fake historical narratives and stuff like that. But it's, it's based on true events and it is just, oh, it stayed with me. I mean, it stayed with me ever since January 2009 when I bought this copy and read it, obviously. Um, 2017, that's when it came out. Um, And I also want to flag up, I don't know if this is a classic or not, I certainly have the vintage classics copy 
So I think that might mean it's already a classic. Um, but not enough people read it. And it's Nights at the Circus by Angela Carter. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Night Circus. You're thinking of The Sorry. Night Circus by Erin yeah. Morgenstein. I haven't actually read that one, but Nights at the Circus mm. by Angela Carter was written, I think, in the 80s and is just uh, the most sort of expansive, beautiful, magical realism, fairy tale esque. It's about um, a journalist interviewing a woman who is in a carnival and she has wings like and the journalist is trying to work out whether she really has these wings or she's just faking for like carnival mm-hmm. attention but in like um early 20th century london and it's it's just, it's very cool and it goes in so many different places none of which you expect it like this mm. is just it's just nuts and incredible and so worth a read. And it's fun as well. It's just a mm. really fun book. Okay. What about you? Um, I would probably well, when you when we were like mu- like mulling over this question, the first two people that came into mind, albeit that they have passed away now, but Joan Didion, that's it. Yeah, Joan Didion and Eve Babbitts. Um I think their books are now, I would say, would become on the verge of beco- being called classics if they're not already. But um, they are more modern at the moment. But yeah, I could see those becoming classics. But also, before the coffee gets cold. Mm. Um, I've got that on my list. I've got a copy. I need to read it. Yeah, that is really good. And everybody I've lent it to loves it and it's it's loves it to the point where it's really like stayed in their heart um i can't remember the name of the author by uh toshikazu kawaguchi i think that's how you're pronouncing it if i'm butchering it please let me know (laughs) um uh that is about a coffee shop in tokyo in japan um which has one seat at one table, which if you sit in it, um, you can go back in time, but you can only go back in time to a moment that took place in the coffee shop. And it follows, I think it follows three, three story lines. I want to say I read it a long time ago. I read it pre-pandemic, so my brain might not be. Mm. Uh, so in between now and then, the world did end. So yeah, so I yeah. think I've got an excuse at this point. Yeah, but um, I loved it. I read. I would read it on the tube, and it was so. I think you could. It was. It's one of those books that you could really pick apart because of the interactions. It's not necessarily the storyline. It's just more of the way it's written and the interactions between the characters. Mm. And I think those sorts of stories stay in my heart more than maybe the action-packed storylines do. Yeah. What about you, Sophie? So I think some books that I would like to see become classics for several reasons, both because I really love them and also because I think it would be good and interesting and really interesting to kind of study like the context would be some of the Greek feminist retellings like I think Circe and then Pat Barker's two books 
Silence Ooh. of the Girls. Yeah, mm. Song of Achilles. Yeah, and Song of Achilles. I was, I was, I was, I was thinking it does, but yeah, Song of Achilles, and then also Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls and Women of Troy, which I just finished. Um, and it was so oh, good. Yeah, I think. Yeah, but on the one hand, like, firstly, they're both really, they're all really well written. Um, both authors do a really, really amazing job of kind of bringing these characters to life. Um using modern language mm. and just kind of making them feel like people. Um, but also I just think it would be, <laughs> because I think I think Greek mythology is, is always going to be part of the canon. Um, and I just think it's, it would be nice and interesting to have, say like Silence of the Girls, and the woman of Troy as a counterpoint to read to the Iliad because Bryce's yeah yeah like because like Bryce's mm. is so the sort of like canon triggering to canon. kind of event you know most of the events in those in those texts are sparked by women if it's you know Helen running off with Paris um, mm. or Bryce or you know Chrysis being handed over and then Bryce's being taken away from Achilles so many of these events stem from women, but there are no women in the text. And I just think it would be nice kind of going forward to include mm. that in discussions and conversations and to kind of, yeah, just have women <laughs> in these roles. And I think both Silence of the Girls and Women of Troy yeah. are not kind of overly brutal with, it's like, it acknowledges the violence, it shows the violence and it shows it as systemic, but it's not kind of super brutal in, the way that I think some of those texts can be. So I just think that they make a nice balance mm. overall. Oh, yes. I had a question. Okay. I had a question. I've forgotten okay. my question. <laughs> was it the uh, wait. It was. Uh... Uh. Okay. No, it's um, gone. Never mind. In that case, I think we have probably. I think, yeah, with that, we've successfully reshaped yes, the camera, which us. I think is a good um, shit stopping mm. point. <laughs> oh, uh, my question came back. Sorry. <laughs> the second after we moved on. <laughs> By the way, we started recording like an hour and a half later in the evening than we normally do. So if we, you're getting yeah, like, some like weird I, I vibes from us. That's I what's going on. Like a two and a quarter hour meeting and then was like, right, off home, we got to record. I'm surprised my brain is honestly still working at this point. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I was just thinking about like people, authors that win the Nobel Literature Prize. Mm -hmm. And how yeah. I actually don't know pretty much any Nobel authors. <laughs> and I was wondering about that and thinking, like, why don't we know many Nobel authors? I think Nobel authors, you, you probably do know Nobel authors. It's just that once an author is, like, you know, a classic author, the fact that they won a Nobel is not necessarily going to be top billing so much as just the fact that they're them. Mm. Like I would say that Ishiguro, I think his books, I didn't bring him up because I think his books are probably already going to become classics. Like I think Never Let Me Go is probably a classic already. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I do think that Nobel Prize probably does play a role in kind of saying, yes, you are being ushered into the canon now. 
Um, so I think it yeah. is actually kind of interesting to consider. J.M. Coetzee, William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies, won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, Gabrielle Garcia yeah, Marquez, okay. he wrote A Hundred Years of Solitude that we Definitely, talked about yeah. earlier. Um, mm. Oh, come on. I know. Oh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, yes. And two yeah. years before yeah, that, Jean-Paul. John Steinbeck, author of Of Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Boris Pasternak. Camus, Albert Camus from France. And then uh, in 1954, okay. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, and in 1953, Winston Churchill. No way. <laughs> yeah. What did we give him a Nobel Prize for? Winning a war, probably. No, the Nobel Prize <laughs> in Literature. No, but like... But like deep spiritual insight and the artistic intensity with which he has in his novels pre- penetrated. Oh no, that's someone else. For his mastery of historical, <laughs> I got to the word novels and I was like, Churchill wasn't a novelist. History essay and memoirs <laughs> for his mastery of historical and biographical oh, description, as well as for brilliant oratory and defending exalted human values. Bertrand Russell, William mm. Faulkner, and I'm sure. Horrendously racist. Um, yeah. William Faulkner, T. S. Eliot. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess what we're seeing is a pattern of Nobel Prize winners who are classic authors, or like, I guess, oh, yeah, George classic. Bernard Shaw wrote um, *Pygmalion*. Oh. Yeah. Went yeah. on to *My Fair Lady*. Yeah. yeah. Yates. But yeah. when you think of Yates, you don't think of Nobel Prize winning Yates because he's already Yates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No one's like, oh, the Nobel Prize winner Ernest Hemingway. You're just like Hemingway. It's not Hemingway. <laughs> but what yeah. I wasn't reading out was like, you know, one out of ten are uh, Hemingway. Nine out of ten are people who we've already forgotten. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was just quite because uh, I never pay attention to the Nobel Prize literature. Yeah, Postings. I mean, I think they've, if, I mean, sometimes they're controversial, but I will say Ishiguro was the first time I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, about- yeah. I don't remember that because I was like, oh, good for him. Yeah, I approve yeah. of that one. Well, especially that was the year after Bob Dylan and that one irritated me. Not because Bob Dylan's not literature, like music is literature, music the is thing good. is, is like, I was just, just thinking Dylan. about Ugh. like, John le Carre and Dan Brown and these are people who've written like loads of books they that you wouldn't view them as a classic mm. writer but they're an incredibly popular writer and one that has you know a spot in history within literature but they're neither in the classics nor I don't know how to describe it. Could maybe end up in like. I feel like the carry would be a genre classic. Yeah. Like not considered a classic overall if you're yeah. taking the entire yeah, of literature, but I think if you're going to go down into the very niche genre of spy novels, I, I do think the carry would probably be considered a classic in that realm. So when we say classic, I don't know about that. Do we usually talk about contemporary rather than genre? Because when I hear classic, mm. I, my mind doesn't go to j- different genres of classics. Like, it's either classic in the big pot. I think when we think yeah. of 
classic we think of literary classics you know and literary I'm not you not literary as in literature but literary mm. is in the genre literary fiction also uh, literary fiction oh yeah which is why Churchill won his Nobel Prize um yeah that's a question not a lot probably... of answers we're just out of we're answers. not out of ideas I think we've reached the point I think we've reached the point that ends every chatty podcast. We're not out of <laughs> yeah. ideas, but we're out of coherent yeah. sentences. Okay, let's let, let's you know? wrap this up. Okay. So, um, yeah. if those ramblings are going to be included or not, that's up for editing fee in the Hello. future. Who knows what she'll do? Um, but yeah, I think that yeah. probably brings our discussion of classics mm-hmm. to a close. It's it's a very broad topic. One that's kind of hard to get into and one that I definitely think hmm. has potential for us to maybe revisit, especially around some of these issues, things that kind of come up at the end, like modern classics, genre classics, are they the same thing? Oh, I just threw a stress ball at myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. The I, fact I, that I you have to use a stress ball when doing a podcast with us, I think speaks volumes. Well, it's not yeah. actually, I'm not doing the stress thing, I just need to fiddle with something. So Yeah, much better than the keys. <laughs> much better than the yeah keys. so but anyway um <laughs> god you ruin one podcast recording by jangling your keys yeah. constantly so i think that, that does bring an end to our discussion on classics um for now uh next week we will be doing our book news episode i think i yeah I yeah i, I think it's book news yeah. Yeah. next week is book news mm-hmm. i think we're going to be book aiming news. to do book news on the second week of every month yeah um uh, yeah and spoiler alert this month is the 100th okay. anniversary of ulysses <laughs> i thought you were so gonna say some classics in our book episode news. or something like that I was like, oh, no it's not <laughs> <laughs> no no did no, i no, say you, you did episode you said the right ulysses? thing my brain just processed of the wrong thing <laughs> good 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 okay. good so yeah next week will be our, our book news episode um as always, uh, you can find us on Instagram at the Book Table Podcast. We uh, post like what we're reading and little reviews of books that we have read. Um, and just pretty and, pictures. Yeah, please get in touch with us there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pictures, lots of lots of book pictures. Um, yeah, so yeah, they're pretty pictures. Really, like get in touch with us over there. We'd love to hear what you think about any of the things that we discuss in this podcast. Um, and our book club. <laughs> yeah, anything. Month. Sorry. Even if it's Leonardo DiCaprio's abs or something. <laughs> okay. Sorry. She can respond to those. Yeah. Um, you'll make her happy, no doubt. Um, yeah, our book club book of the month. It is, well, it will be February when this episode goes out. So we are doing a romance book. Uh, we're doing Rosalind Palmer Takes the Cake by Alexis Hall. Um, so please feel free to read along with us. Uh, yeah read that along with us and the episode will come yep. out at the end of the month uh and in that case i think that's everything do you two want to say goodbye um yeah if you've made we'll, yeah we'll speak to you next week right. and, and we'll if speak you've to made you next it this week far, goodbye send a send a picture of leonardo dicaprio to our instagram <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> to prove that you're a hardcore listener oh we are doing that oh, okay um <laughs> Bye. Don't leave. And we have to do Let the introduction. Anyway. All right. Bye. bye. See you next week. <laughs>